Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. We'll be diving into these few verses that Pastor Sam has already read for us. I'm not going to reread them, uh, but I'll refer to them as we dive into our uh, passage together and our our time in the Word. I want to begin with a lighthearted illustration, maybe that will begin to probe our thinking for us today. A news report out of Guatemala City read this, and this might, this is not the lighthearted part because I'm not going to do very well with the name, but uh, a news report out of Guatemala City read this, Angela de Leon Carrillo de Chavez, 53, that's a long name, said she had been married to her husband, Luis, for 22 years but that he no longer seemed to care. So she came up with an ingenious plan to see if her husband really cared. Mrs. Chavez telephoned her home Thursday to tell her husband that she had been kidnapped and that he would have to pay $500 to a ransom for her release. Of course, this was not true and was testing Mr. Chavez So uh, to see if he really cared. Now, once again, this is not a good thing to do. So do not take notes, all right? (laughs) Mr. Chavez apparently did care and was understandably quite concerned. He quickly raised the ransom money, but then he thought, maybe I should go and talk to the police. And so he went to the police to see if they could help locate Mrs. Chavez And in fact, they were quite successful locating Mrs. Chavez. And then she was immediately jailed for faking her kidnapping. Now, I don't know if this story is true or not, but I do share with you this morning to begin to probe your thinking actually in the motive of why she staged this phenomenal kidnapping. And it really was in the kernel idea, does my husband care for me. And really, it, it is a question that maybe you ask Does anyone really care? And of course, we might ask this of our relationships on earth, but maybe you've wondered this with your relationship with your heavenly Father. Does God really care? And this is the question that someone asks, not when necessary life is wonderful, sublime, perfect, comfortable. These are the questions that come out of the field of sorrow, the field of hardship. It comes out in the experiences of the pressures of life. In the the moments of grief, that is when that question comes to the surface. I recently, I, uh, several years ago, I was having a conversation and, and counts, pastorally counseling someone who was going through a horrific circumstance of life. And she said, Pastor Ben, I've, I've often struggled with, is God really sovereign? If, would, if God was really in control, would he actually, you know, uh, would have let this come to pass? Is he really able to control all those things? Uh, she had a bit more of a, a deistic idea. And then she was reading an incredible book entitled Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And she came to the foundational idea, no, God is in control. 
But then she began to struggle with the concept, is God really good? And maybe that is where you find yourself today. And at times when we're in the midst of pain, we feel as if we are all alone. We begin to think these types of thoughts. Surely there is no one that can understand and fully appreciate the trauma that has happened to me. We know we can always look at the severity of a trial and we ask, does Jesus care? We believe that he is sovereign and in control, but if he really cared, then surely he would stop the trial, stop the suffering, stop the hardship, and ease the storm. These thoughts are easy to have, but dangerous for the Christian. If you've been a part of our community groups, you've been studying the book of Mark And we've learned a few things along our journey through this book. First, this book is incredibly fast-paced. 41 times the word immediately arises in this book. And so you get the idea that Mark is almost like this energetic uh, friend who wants to bring you on this show-and-tell journey as he begins to show what Jesus has done and how he's healing people. But Mark, as he is demonstrating that Jesus, that the Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, is the all-powerful God. He casts out demons. He controls the weather. Um, he heals people of their leprosy. He gives the blind man sight. He gives the man who was unable to walk. Now he is free from paralyzation. And in chapter five, he's about to cast out demons of the man who had been possessed. So, so, so Mark brings us on this journey that is so abrupt. And we meet this man that he is the Christ. But this all-powerful son of man didn't come to just demonstrate that he was the, 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 the Christ. But he also came to serve. What an incredible contradiction. He actually came to serve and not be served, but to give his life a ransom so uh, that many may come to know him. A unbelievable contradiction that we would find nowhere in our world today unless someone is inspired by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've turned our books, our Bibles to Mark 4. And I want to ask this question Does anyone care? Yes, Jesus cares. And so let me give you three points that highlight the events that happened through these few verses. First of all, this was a bad night for a boat ride. This was a very bad night for a boat ride. What happens? Jesus had spent the whole day teaching people about the kingdom of heaven. And undoubtedly, he was weary. He just talked about uh, the sermon of the mustard seed. He, he, he preached about the growing seed. He had been preaching and laboring so people could understand the kingdom of God. And it was now even evening, so Jesus instructs his disciples, let's go to the other side. Now, you read the whole story. We know the end of the story. But if, if you were to look back and you think for a moment, 
Come on, why go to the other side? Let's just take a little jaunt over, you know, a couple miles, find a great spot to camp. You don't need to go to the other side. Oh, but Jesus does need to go to the other side. And it's not actually what's at the other side. It will happen in the middle of the sea. And so they stayed in the boat that he was preaching from and they began to travel to the other side. And then there was this furious windstorm that abruptly tosses the sea so that these fierce, seasoned fishermen of the sea begin to fear for their lives because water was coming over the edge of the boat. I mean, they knew what happens on the Sea of Galilee. This is not uncommon to happen geographically. It, would, uh, it was extremely susceptible to sudden and violent storms because of the, the shape of the mountains and how the wind can uh, funnel through these mountains. I've never been there. Um, but from what I'm told, this is a very common experience. And it's situated in this basin. And so during the morning and at night, the waters are calm, peaceful. Probably when the disciples left that land from preaching, the water was wonderful. It was going to be a a wonderful evening sail to the other side. But um, during the afternoons and evenings, furious storms can arise. And this is the circumstances for the disciples. This is the, the field of where the difficulties arise. This is the moment, the context of the trial. But you and I have a context too. The context of your storm might have a different type of suffering. It might be a terrible illness. It could be struggles of finances. It could be the pressure you experience, maybe the pressure to please other people. It could be the pressure from your job. It could be just the pressures of life that just seem to be so incredible upon you. Every single one of us here today has a context for their storm. Sometimes the storm is caused by our own doing. It's actually the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes the storm can be the the storm of our comparison to other people. We look at other people and we say, wow, they've got their life figured out and man, I don't. Or they've got all these, these, the, the, this fantastic truck and I, you know, I can barely pay my bills in this, this storm that comes about of comparison that just eats at us. And we say, well, does Jesus care? Some of this comes from our own sinful heart and that the Lord is sovereign over all of this. Most of us have a storm, and so let's see what happens to the disciples in Christ in the boat and their storm. Well, we've seen that this was a bad night for a boat ride, but a bad boat ride reveals who the disciples are. This bad boat ride reveals who the disciples are. What happens? The disciples, they begin to bail water out as the the storm comes up. They begin to bail the water out of their boat. It's really touch and go and wondering, will they survive? And someone begins to ask this question. Hey, where is Jesus? 
I mean, surely, maybe he can do something about this. You know, he's healed people who are blind. He's, he's taken away leprosy from fe- people. Could, could, could he do something here? Maybe that is what their thought was. But we actually learn in chapter four, verse 40 that they were filled with fear. The fear became so palpable in their hearts And the the disciples uh, were so blown away that Jesus could be sleeping in the back of the boat after a long, exhausting day of teaching. They come to him and they say, teacher, don't you care that we are going to drown? They infused their question to Christ, not just, hey, hey, can you please help us? It was infused with actually degrading his character. You don't care. Has someone ever asked you a question uh, without asking you a question? Or, or maybe I reverse that. They, they, they give a question. No, that's what I'm trying to say. They ask a question, but it's really not a question. Um, that is exactly what the disciples do right here. They are asking this question, but this is not a question. It's very much a statement, and it's a statement about the character of Jesus and so what does this reveal? Well, on the surface, Jesus is about to share, it reveals their fear. It reveals their fear. You know, I've, I've worked pastorally with people for long enough to know that fear is often exacerbated by fearful questions. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever maybe started to ask the what if questions of life? Oh, whoa, whoa, what, what if this happens? Oh, what, 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 what if this happens? And does that ever bring you to a place of serenity and peace? Never. Do you know why we actually are always filled with fear when we ask the what if questions? Because you and I were never meant to ask the what if questions. Because actually, there's a God of heaven who, who knows the answer to the what if question. And it's, it's your and I's little micro moment of trying to be God. Oh, I, I want to know the future. And so what if this will happen? Oh, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And so it's our, it's our God-like attempt to actually to try to know what should I do? What should I not do? Is this the right answer? And then when you become really good at it, you actually think you can predict the future. What happens when you actually get something wrong? You don't predict it right. Actually, it all goes to a bad spot. What happens? You're filled with regret. Oh, I should have done this, and, and I should have done this. And if I, if I, if I didn't, uh, if I just knew to, to do this differently, I, I would have been able to do the right thing. And regret... And anxiety, regret, speaking from the past, fear, anxiety, looks to the future. And both of them are our attempt to be the omniscient God of who we are not meant to be. It kind of resembles a story that happens in Genesis chapter 3. And here was Adam and Eve, and, and they decided they wanted to be like God. 
They wanted to know these things and, and Satan tempted them. And, and what happened when they get to the, after they sinned, they were, they were, their eyes were, were revealed. They, they knew what was going on. They were filled with fear. And what did they do? The first time anybody has ever experienced fear, what did they do? They went and hid. They quaked. And so you have this whole book, the book of the Bible, that is this incredible uh, uh, realization that there actually will come a day when all fear is washed away, all tears are gone, and those happen in the last two chapters of the Bible. When we're in the presence of Jesus again, it's all about the restoration of relationship to Jesus. So Adam and Eve, they had perfect relationship with, with God as they walked in the garden. What an incredible experience. And the last two chapters will worship, will worship Jesus on the throne of heaven for all eternity and all will be made right. But all the chapters in between realize that we need God today. And so often we attempt to do something very, very different. And so I just wonder, after working with people for so many years, I wonder what the questions that were going through their minds were. Well, they kind of actually gave a statement. Um, hey, we're going to drown. Will the boat collapse? Are we going to be destroyed? Where did the storm come from? I knew we shouldn't have listened to Jesus. He's not a sailor. I mean, maybe these were the questions they asked. I don't know. And this is the fear that comes into our heart. Let me just say two, two thoughts, uh, a few thoughts for us and why is fear so harmful for believers? Why is fear so harmful for believers? For people? Well, fear erodes faith that God controls the circumstances and provides an outcome. Fear erodes faith that God controls the circumstances and pro provides an outcome. So what happens if, if we don't believe that God will provide an outcome? Guess who has to provide the outcome? Me. It's me. And so we begin to control and this is where we, we become stressed out and, and anxious and we have to provide all good things for our life. But we learn from James chapter one, where does all good things in life come from? From the God of heaven. And so it is wrong for us to believe that actually it is the, the, the work of our hands that make things happen. It's actually God's provision that gives us all good things. And so maybe you go to work and you are so stressed out. God is going to provide. Maybe the weight of a providing for your family has become this incredible burden on your heart. God will provide. And whatever fear you may be going through, God is in control of those circumstances and he will provide an outcome. And this is when life begins to pull apart at the seams. But not only does our uh, faith and fear, they, they can't exist. They can't coexist. It's impossible. But, but second, fear erodes grace-filled, gospel-motivated living. Fear erodes grace-filled, gospel-motivated living. Okay, what happens when, when um, uh, if, if you're going through some sort of event and you're filled with fear? 
Maybe you're, you're very stressed about your, your job making ends meet and maybe somehow you end up getting a few more hours at work and you, or you, or you sell this, uh, this uh, a big sale and it provides miraculously for your family. But what happens with someone who's debilitated with fear? They think about themselves. Oh, look at my hand. Look what I did. Yes, yes. And they go pay the bill. They go do whatever they need to do with that money or or that circumstance or whatever. Or maybe they get that one congratulation. Good job. And that satisfies for a moment. But the hunt for more never ends. And so it ends up squelching grace and how you treat other people. And it ends up destroying seeing all of the things that you have or all the, 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 the experiences of your life are because of you and not because of God. And your hands are not clen- uh, open like this, but they're clenched close. So fear is an absolute terror. But not only does fear harm our walk with the Lord, but it's harmful for others. Fear never stays in its little corner. It's always this tidal wave that comes out of our lives and hurts, frustrates, and breaks other people. And where did this all come from for the disciples? It came from a circumstance. It came from a circumstance. Was this just the response to a circumstance? No. Our reactions always come from our hearts. They come from what we believe about God. And we see that the disciples are in full panic mode. They're really scared, but these emotions just don't happen. They're derived from our thinking. And the statement that comes out of their minds is, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Their attitude, uh, they attach motive to the question. The disciples have mastered that art. And Lord, we're going to perish, but you don't care that we will perish. You know, in the moments when our hearts are struggling with circumstances of life that bring suffering, heartache, we may not come and say, Jesus, you don't care, but we grapple with this. We, we wrestle with this. But why did this all happen? Was it just to expose the heart of the, the disciples or was actually something deeper going on? Well, we looked at the, the circumstances of this bad boat ride. We, we saw that the boat ride reveals who the disciples are. But most importantly, this boat ride reveals who Jesus is. This boat ride reveals who Jesus is. And it reveals that Jesus cares. Jesus wakes from his sleep. He rebukes the storm. Peace be still. And the storm breaks. The wind dies. The water stills. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus rebukes their fear, rebukes their lack of faith. And I know what some of you may be thinking. You may be thinking this question. Ben, I would have been really afraid too. I mean, Ben, I would have been extremely fearful. I mean, first of all, I hate water, but if I get on that boat and the boat's about to collapse, the storm's crazy. I mean, aren't they kind of justified in being really, really afraid? Well, I think you're right to ask that question. 
But imagine with me if the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the controller of the wind and the rain. Save us because we cannot save ourselves. Oh, instead of actually saying, Jesus, you don't care, they could have said, Jesus, you're the savior of the world. I've seen you do this. You've, you've healed people with leprosy. You've made the blind see. Why can't you do it here too? And instead, it could have actually been a moment of faith. You know, I actually don't think Christ would have rebuked them if they came in that spirit. The fearful moment revealed that they actually had, that the, the fearful moment could have revealed that they had faith in the only true God. So as Christ rebukes the storm, he shows his power and he exposes the faithfulness of the disciples and he shows that he cares. He cared enough for them that he wanted to show who they were and the true lack of faith that they had. Maybe you're thinking to yourself as you listen to the story and you think, why won't Jesus bring peace to my storm? I mean, my life's out of control. My life is filled with stress. I'm I'm hopeless and knowing how to get through the storm. Jesus, just calm my storm. You know, sometimes when we go through hardship and pressure, we think the answer is that God should end the trial. He should stop the storm. But ultimately, Jesus' goal isn't for the storm to be stopped, but for, for you to see that he's good and for you to see how you can be matured into Christ's likeness. It was C.S. Lewis who so aptly put, long ago, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so it's you and I in our comforts, we often become oblivious to the workings of God. But in the moment of our pain, of our trial, actually God takes out the microphone and he says, I am here and we listen. And that is what God wants for us to listen. You think again, back to Genesis 1 and 2, they walked in the garden with God and it was, it was perfect. It was Perfection. God was with them. And you think about the one day that we will be with, with Jesus forever and we will be with Jesus. But, but ever since, in, in, in all in between, there's, there's iterations, stages of the nearness that a person can be close to God. And then through the gospel, God sent the Spirit of God and so when the, the Israelites, they couldn't go into close to be with God, only a mediator once a year. But now you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you actually have God inside of you, the Holy Spirit. And so as we walk through the fears, the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to say, I am near. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when Jesus calmed the storm, I really bet they regretted asking Jesus if he cared. <laughs> oh, that probably shouldn't have said that. In verse 41, it says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were terrified. 
there was this awe that came over them. There was a sense that they just uh, learned something about Christ that they had not known about him. This was beyond their, their, their mindset of what they've understood about Christ. It's almost like their question was a rhetorical question. Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. This is the son of God. It's interesting to note that the fear of Jesus calming the storm was arguably maybe more alarming than the storm itself. It, it actually, we have a sense of understanding the natural, but when the supernatural actually stepped in, something actually was, was out of the paradigm for the disciples. It was terrifying. And I want to bring your attention that this is not the first occurrence in Scripture where man was found to, uh, was, was, was fearful at the display of God's power. Think back with me to the Israelites. You, you may uh, know this story. If you don't, let me recap it really quickly for you. The Israelites, they have been in bondage in, in Egypt. And they've been enslaved there. And, and they've been doing the work of Pharaoh. And, and there was a plan and purpose for that. And, and we know that. With, with scripture talks about that plan and purpose. But it was time for the Israelites to be delivered from Egypt. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and let my people go. And, and, and Pharaoh says, no. And so what happens? God sends plagues to the land of Egypt. Everything from uh, the water of the Nile turning red like blood to frogs hopping around to all the crops being eaten by the locusts to boils. And then finally, the, the uh, archangel comes and actually takes uh, the eldest of all the families, the eldest son. And so in that moment, there were actually some families that lost a dad and, and a son, the oldest son, and, and others just lost a son. I mean, it was a horrific moment. You could hear the mourning all through Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh said, go, just get out of here. And they ran. They, the Israelites picked up all their stuff. They were ready to go. The God had, uh, Moses had prepared them. Uh, and so they got up and left. And they, they, they went. And they got to the Red Sea. God, what'd you do? You, did you bring us out here to die? You know, we know, if you know the story, they'll ask that a few more times on their journey to the promised land. But they get to the Red Sea and, and they seem like this was no hope. And, and they hear, the, the, maybe they heard the hoof prints, uh, the, 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 the sounding of the hoofs of, Egypt, uh, of Pharaoh because he kind of changed his mind. He said, no, I want these people. These people have to do my work. And so here they are. They seem trapped. And God provides a way. The water parts and they walk through on dry ground through the Red Sea to the other side. Pharaoh and his men with horses and chariots come running through the Red Sea and the area, they come through that, the, 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 the walled water tunnel. I'm sure they're like, oh man, I've never done this before. What's going to happen? And, and they were driven to get the Israelites. And the Israelites get to the other side and the water collapsed and they were all destroyed. Israel was saved. And what happened after Israel were saved? Exodus 14 verse 31 says this. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, 
the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord, in his servant, Moses. There was this moment where they, they were in awe, reverence of God. They're saying, wow, who is this God? This is absolutely mind-blowing. And they, they, they trusted God. They had faith in God. They believed God and Moses. And they said, we will follow. Where you lead, we will go. The Israelites revered, reverenced God, and they trusted the Lord. The, the disciples saw, uh, were in awe and reverenced Jesus as they saw the storm stilled. And the disciples, they'll grow in their faith and what will happen? They'll have ups and downs, but they'll turn the world upside down by preaching the gospel and, and, and the seed of the gospel just sprouts through their voices. And you? What about you? If you're a Christian, you do have something to be in awe about. You have the gospel. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt. The disciples were delivered from the storm. And you have been delivered from your sins. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we've been dead in the trespasses of our sins. We were hopeless. There was, there was no return, spiritually speaking, and God gave us life. And so that you and I actually walk around with new eyes to see, new hearts to feel. And there is something that has been transformational in our life. And so we can be in awe at the natural and say, wow, God, how did you part the water? Oh, wow, God, how did you storm, uh, still the storm? But in reality, the work that he has done uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the natural that we can see actually pales into comparison into the reality of what he's done in our hearts. And this is why every single day we must rehearse the gospel because when the moment of fear arises and when the moment of fear comes in our heart, the gospel breaks that because actually the gospel says to hopeless people, there is hope and that hope is found only in Jesus Christ. And so... For you and I, we do have something to be in awe about. It is the gospel. And so what do we do in moments of storm? There's one thing. We walk by faith. We walk by faith and we say, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. I'll follow you. You've done something this great for me. I know you'll work. You are good. You are my loving Lord. So the gospel is the inspiration of awe that destroys fear. So since we've been given the gospel, the good news, we can trust in the midst of the storm. Let me give you a story as I close here. In the late 1800s, in the turn of the century, there was a Methodist preacher named Frank Graff. And Frank Graff was, uh, he was a Methodist preacher in the Methodist churches of Philadelphia. And he had um, the nickname, the Sunshine Minister. He was very cheerful. He was fun. He was greatly appreciated for his attention to children of the congregation. And he and his wife never were able to have children of their own, even though they loved children very, very much. 
And there's a story that actually proves his humor and, and, and uh, jovial side. And it goes, the story goes like this. And one time his wife made several pies and he gave a pie to uh, their neighbor. And that batch of pies, they were unusually uh, tough and the crust was really hard and which he found out after he had delivered it. And so in his effort to apologize, he had gotten a hatchet and presented it to the neighbor as a gift to help cut the pie. I mean, this was just a good na- natured, kind man. Austin C. Miles, he wrote the hymn In the Garden. And he, is a, he said this about Frank. He is a spiritual optimist, a great friend of children. His bright sun-shining disposition attracts not only children, but all with whom he comes in contact. He has a holy magnetism and a childlike faith. Awesome. But would you know, Frank suffered from deep doubts and depression for years. It was during a time of severe physical agony, doubt, and despondency that he turned to the scriptures for hope and strength. And First Peter, particularly 5-7, uh, says this, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That became an extremely meaningful passage for him in a very acute time of need. He wrote the lines to the hymn, Does Jesus Care? In that moment, to express the feeling of assurance that came to him. And the words go like this. If you don't mind, let me read all four verses. And each verse is a question. Does Jesus care when my heart is pain too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Does Jesus care? When my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear, as the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long, does Jesus care When I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks and it is aught to him, does he see? And the chorus resounds after every question. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Through the Holy Scriptures, we have a story that revealed a heart. A band of brothers who followed Jesus, they did what we all would do. Jesus, do you really care that we're about to drown? And Jesus, in his love, he rebukes the storm and it became silent. And then he challenges them, live by faith. And we have an awe 
that reveals that Jesus cares. He has died for us on the cross so that you and I can have new life in him. And so wherever you are today, in your trial, in your storm, may you be reminded, may you rest this week in the reality that Jesus cares for you.